Hello, friends. In today's episode, we have the first of a two-part conversation with Sandy Hall of Hall's Living Library, Jill Morgan of Purple House Press, and Tanya Arnold of BiblioGuides about the beloved landmark book series. You can hear the second half of this conversation on Friday. Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft. I'm here today with Sarah Masaryk, as usual. And today we have Sandy Hall with us, who is one of our library ladies. We have Tanya Arnold from BiblioGuides, and we have Jill Morgan of Purple House Press. Sandy, we are so pleased to have you on the podcast. We've already had Tanya and Jill. I hardly even feel like I need to say hello to them. I'm just teasing. (laughs) (laughs) We are thrilled to have all of you ladies here. Um, But Sandy, it's so nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I am so pleased to be here. Yay. Sandy, we got to know you because of Tanya. And I think the two of you have known each other for a while through through, is it just through your work together, your common love of books? Mm-hmm. Yes. And now, Sandy, do you and Jill know each other or is this the first time you guys are talking? No. I think first time officially talking. I've listened to different podcasts that she's been on and ordered lots of books from her, but first <laughs> time I've met her. So I'm happy to meet Jill too. Well, and she did, she proofread City Under the Back Stubs for Oh, us. don't say that because then if I miss something, <laughs> I'm going to feel terrible. <laughs> I read that thing so many times I had it memorized. It's delightful. We appreciate it. We appreciate it. It was fun. Sandy, my kids and I are reading City Under the Back Steps right now. Why do why do you like that book so much? I mean, we do too, but what is it about it that you like so much? It just takes you into this little world. Mm -hmm. And it's a whole world. Mm -hmm. And yet there's still the epic battle between good and evil and trying to have courage to do what's right and what's good for another person. And then you come back up out of that. It's and like time has stood still. It's just one of those classic type stories. It's really beautiful. And it's fascinating because of the scale, you know, the children become Mm -hmm. as small as ants and that taking reality and twisting on its head, I think is always really fascinating and otherworldly. I look forward to reading it to my grandsons. I'm just curious how they'll take it. They're they're nine and six and four. So we'll see. (laughs) Well, and actually the other day, come to think of it, one of my little grandsons went and stomped on an ant. And I'm like, (gasps) don't do that. (laughs) And I'm like, because it was alive. He goes, I know now it's dead. And I'm like, but he didn't do anything to you. So I really need to read that book to him to give him a little vision of another world. Well, and I think this book is really magical because it appeals to boys and girls. And I I don't think that it's a necessarily, you know, all, not all girls like the same things, not all boys like the same things, but this book, it has that nonfiction element, the science Mm -hmm. of how, like when they're, when they're building a tunnel, and how they have to go all the way down and carry the dirt back out and how Craig is trying to carry the, he's trying to get down the hill and then trying to get the dirt and carry it back out the hill, how exhausted he is. And the ants are just doing it again and again and again. <laughs> there, it, it reveals how pretty marvelous ants are, even if you don't like them. Well, Sandy, tell us, you are what we call a library lady. Why do we call you a library lady? Because I have one, and I have moved it too many times, (laughs) but it is a happy place for me. It's books we've collected over all of our 25 years of homeschooling our children and have just shared it for 20, 25 years. I've shared the books. Not until, I think, 2006 was it more officially a library rather than just lending to friends but it is still a library here on the Northwest side of Atlanta. And I just love serving these families and seeing the children come in all excited about books and telling Mm. me about what they've read. And then I'm just still learning from all of you. How many books do you have? Over 16,000. Wow. (laughs) Yes. Wow. 
And they're all going to have to be moved in the next month because the church where they're housed is recarpeting. There is nothing worse than moving books. Well, maybe pianos and fish tanks and fish tanks. fish tanks. (laughs) This week I've moved a lot of fish tanks and a lot of books. (laughs) When you move a piano though, it's done. I mean, it's hard, but it's one thing and it's over with. (laughs) You don't have to categorize it. (laughs) Right. And make sure they're in alphabetical order, all the Uh keys. (laughs) Right. We're not sure when this episode is going to air in relation to another episode that you're joining us for, where we're going to speak with some other library ladies. Yes. Very excited about that one. But we wanted to have you here today while we talk with Tanya and Jill about landmark books, because as a library lady, you have a lot of landmark books in your library. And a lot of people don't know what the landmark books are. And when they start to find out about it, it gets very overwhelming very quickly. And a lot of these landmark books are extremely difficult to find. Was Combat Nurses a landmark unicorn? Probably. It was like a mid-price unicorn. It was like $50. It's not like it was $500 like Captain Kidd was. So you went with the the biggest unicorn, Jill. (laughs) And then just a little unicorn. Is that it? Yeah. Well, I, the reason that I went after the rights to Captain Kidd is because I went to my local, my little local library's book sale, um, I think two summers ago, and it was, you could buy like 12 books for a dollar. So wow. I looked at their table and Captain Kidd was there. It was shouting no. at me, like, pick me up. So yeah, I it for like seven cents, eight cents, something like that. And I take that as a sign that I was supposed to go the rights. That's what I told Tanya. I took a picture of it in my car. I said, I think I'm supposed to publish this book now. <laughs> Tanya <laughs> said, yes, do. Right, Tanya? Yeah. So I, I tracked down the rights and... Um, you know, it, it just went from there. It didn't take very long once I finally got in touch with the agent for the author's family. Wow. I think maybe at the beginning here, I should ask you, why do we care about landmark books? Because I this is not something I was familiar with. And I homeschooled and I taught in a classical school and I'm still working with homeschoolers. And this is not something I have ever heard about in my real life circle. Mm-hmm. I think part of the draw is the scope. One of the things is the scope of history that's covered Um, from earliest times up through 1970, when the last one was published around that time. So anything that you're studying, any time period of history, you should be able to find something in the landmark series, either in the American ones or the world um, that uh, you can use in your studies. The second reason is the quality of the writers. Mm -hmm. They're just amazing, the people that wrote. And these people were not given any guidelines except that it had to appeal to 10 to 15-year-olds and be about 200 pages or less. And people who were experts in that field already were chosen to write about specific topics. So again, that's one of the things about what a living book is, is it's an author that writes with a passion for his topic Mm -hmm. and a knowledge of it. So that is what appeals, I think, to the landmark books. They're just so well done that way. That's amazing. Now, how many landmark books are there in total? There were 122 landmarks and 63 world landmarks. The landmarks were published between 1950 and 1970, and the world landmarks were introduced in 1953, and the last one was in 1968. And then there are the giant landmarks as well, which probably we'll mention at some point. Well, yeah, while we're on that, let's talk about that. The giant, are they for younger children? No. Those are more non-fictional, really, than narrative in style, and I get the impression they were written after most of the landmarks. So they did definitely appeal more to junior high, senior high kind okay. of writing. And they cover other topics than just history, biography. Like there's a sports one and some different things like that. Are those more comparable, say, to like the real science book? Oh, they're much more extensive than that. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And they're illustrated more with photographs and artwork and things like that, rather than illustrations, like most of the landmarks were. 
Gotcha. Interesting. They're also bigger in size. Yeah. Yeah, They're much bigger, kind of a large oversized book and usually about an inch to an inch and a quarter thick. So comparable in size and shape to a child craft book, maybe? A little bit bigger, actually. Wow. Just a tad bigger. Yes. I would like to kind of share a story if you guys don't mind a story. That we hate stories. Do we love stories? <laughs> I, just, I, I think stories are what bring it to life, right? Which is one of the reasons, as Sandy was saying, the quality of the writing is mm-hmm. what we would call what made a living book because it brings it to life, right? It mm-hmm. makes it living for the child or for the adult who's reading it as well. This gentleman named Bennett Cerf. I'm not exactly sure what his title was at Random House, but I think he was a founder of the company. Yes. So he was kind of a head of the company. And the landmark books came about because it was, it was his idea. And uh-huh. I'm just going to share in his own words how this came to be. So he had a son named Chris. So he said, Chris was responsible for the whole landmark series. I got the idea for them in the summer of 1948 when Chris was seven and Jonathan was two. We were up on Cape Cod between Provincetown and Barnstable in a house on the Bayside. I was sitting on the beach one day with Chris. John was playing around somewhere. And I asked Chris if he realized that where we were sitting was where the pilgrims landed. Chris, who had learned differently at school, said, You're wrong, Dad. They landed on Plymouth Rock. I said, They did not land on Plymouth Rock. They landed right here at Provincetown, and they stayed here for about two weeks. I could see that Chris didn't believe me, so I said, We're going down to the bookstore and get you a book on it. The bookstore in Provincetown was run in the summer by Paul and Bunny Smith, who also had one in Chapel Hill at the University of North Carolina in the wintertime. Theirs was a first-rate bookshop because they were real book people. When we walked in, I said to Paul, I want to see all the children's books you've got about the pilgrims. Paul said, we haven't got any. I said, what do you mean? In Provincetown, you haven't got books about the pilgrims? (laughs) He said, I haven't got them for a very good reason. There aren't any. It was hard to believe, but it was true. I began thinking about it, and suddenly it struck me that there should be a series of books, each one on some great episode in American history. By the time we left Provincetown, I had made a list of the first 10 titles and I had a name for the series, Landmark Books. I also decided not to get authors of children's books, but the most important authors in the country. When I discussed this idea with Louise Bonino, She was a little dubious and said, in the first place, you won't be able to get such people to write books for children. Second, I don't know whether there'll be enough demand for a whole book about the pilgrims or say a whole book about the first transcontinental railroad. I went from one author to another and every one of them jumped at the chance. They thought it was a great idea. The keystone of the whole thing was Dorothy Canfield Fisher, who in addition to being a distinguished novelist, was a noted authority on children and a judge of the Book of the Month Club. Mm -hmm. Bob Hawes had a place up in Vermont, right next to the Fisher home, and they were great personal friends. I wanted a book by Mrs. Fisher desperately. Mm -hmm. Bob said, she's such a busy woman. I don't think you ought to disturb her. Despite Bob's apprehension, I made a lunch date with Dorothy. I told her about my idea, and then I said, my dream is, Dorothy, that you would do one of these books for us. She said, do one of these books? (laughs) You've shown me your list of the first 10 and I want to do two of them. I almost fell off my chair. She did one about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and one about Paul Revere and the Minutemen. Another of the first 10 was the Pony Express by Samuel Hopkins Adams, one of the most successful. And Sam later did the Santa Fe Trail and the Erie Canal. Landmark books took off like a rocket and as the series grew, more and more well-known writers were happy to participate. Even those repetitious Westerns on television create a desire for knowledge of American history. For example, when the Daniel Boone craze was on, we had a Daniel Boone in Landmark Books by John Mason Brown. That book sold by the thousands and is still one of the most popular. This is from a book called At Random, The Reminiscences of Bennett Cerf. You can read it on Internet Archive. We could add that to the show notes. So he kind of shares. I mean, isn't that so inspiring? Like it was from his children that he realized that there was this gap and this need. And I I think what's interesting is they said there weren't any books. What we know now 
with the amount of books that are on Internet Archive, especially that are now public domain, is there were books. Mm. But how readily available were they? Which school districts had them? Mm -hmm. How long did they have them for? Actually, later, Chris was working for them. It was Chris's idea to number them and to create a desire for them. And they were saying this series sold really well. And if a child liked one book, the child wanted the next book. And so Chris wanted to have the, the series numbered. And then he did it so well. He made sure that they were beautiful with dust jackets, but they were library reinforced bindings. Mm-hmm. They held up well. And then he held the price steady at mm-hmm. about $1.50 a book for, I think, almost the whole 20 years, maybe $1.50 wow. to $1.95. That price was stable for that entire time period. And then he did them as part of the Book of the Month Club, mm-hmm. in which if you were part of that, and I think they said about 70,000 kids were. Wow. Yeah, that you would also get a letter from the author. So when you have an edition that gets the letter, then that would have been a book club edition. And that also kind of was the author's way to share with the children why they loved this topic, why they wanted to be a part of it, why they wrote the story. And it's just those letters are gems. They're gems. Yeah. Well, that's like even in all the other books that Jill does now, she always asks authors to put in a letter and the letters are sometimes the best part. They just make the story even better. <laughs> That's- I love that story because Bennett Cerf, the books he wrote were all like the riddle, riddle books and joke books and mm-hmm. humor type things for young, young children. And then all of a sudden he's responsible for this wealth of history and biography And it was because it grew out of a need, right? Necessity is the mother of invention. When I saw that story, I read it also online. I got thinking like, okay, who today is going to write the books of current events since 1970, the last 50 years of current Mm -hmm. events? Do we have, you know, older teens that are well-read or young adults that have come up through reading this beautiful quality literature that now could take up the mantle and write some books about 9-11, write some books about the COVID shutdown, you know, write some books about Ronald Reagan. Reagan. Mm -hmm. Who's going to do that? There was, there's a need for that as well. Right. Right. I was born in the fifties mm-hmm. and that is the beginning of the baby boom era. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it just seems like a lot of children's books were written in the fifties and sixties because of that growth of elementary, junior high age children. It was right. phenomenal growth in our country. So the timing of that publication of those books was excellent for that reason as well. Yeah. It was a market Is that why we call this the golden age then? Because so many books came out at that time or is the golden age before that? The golden age technically is before that late 1800s into the thirties or forties. But I really, I kind of categorize it as the thirties up to 1970. That seems like the heavy bulk of what was published for children. And before the change in the late sixties, early seventies to a whole different kind of writing. Most of my stuff is pre-1970 that I have. So it's kind of interesting that the landmark stopped at that point. Why? It was interesting when I did the research years ago on the Childcraft books that it was the United Nations had the summit for the child. Was that in the late 1970s or early 80s? And so there was a worldwide effort to change the way we view children. And in so doing, we, we fundamentally changed how literature and teaching was delivered to a child. I think everybody here kind of agrees that 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 was when things kind of took a turn. I just want to say that all kind of ties in with the book Phoebe Fairchild by Lois Linsky, because Phoebe Fairchild Mm -hmm. has one of the first children's books ever written in the United States or that children didn't even have books. Well, the whole series idea I think that that continues to remain very true for children. Jill, when Greta got done reading Combat Nurses, she really wanted to read Medical Heroes. And I told her, well, that one hasn't been printed yet. I'm working on it. (laughs) She wants the next one because Greta has begun to trust as well. All the landmark books that we've read, Greta has really begun to trust as well that if it's a landmark book, it's going to be a great one. 
if it's a Purple House Press landmark one, it's going to be an especially great one. That's her oh, feeling. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's interesting that she really loved the nurses book oh, so much. Yeah. She wants. I've skimmed Medical Corps Heroes, and it's so good. I mean, that is an mm-hmm. excellent story. It's another interesting thing about the landmarks is that. You know, I think between the 19, 1950 and 1960, those, those first 10 years really focused on a lot of the key components and aspects of American history. Mm-hmm. But then by the 60s, a lot of the books towards the end are focusing more on World War II. Mm-hmm. And the authors were not children's authors again. Right. Um, but they were mostly a lot of war correspondents. Yeah. And so you have, and a lot of times they were really well versed in the topic because they had been correspondents and they had written an adult book mm-hmm. and then were asked with like and like um, Sandy had shared they weren't given the parameters but they were asked to take that topic and create something that would be accessible for a younger audience and they sure. did it really magnificently I think so I just think it's interesting that there was a huge um number of books and focus on the World War II stories and they were so well done <laughs> so well done my son Jack, my son Jack is pulling every World War II book. I mean, we're doing World War II this year, but he's pulling them off even for his free reads because he just loves them. Yeah, they're good. And it's a fun area to study. I think it's appropriate that they were called landmarks because it's almost like they're the hilltop events yes. of American and world history. It's like there's there's a landmark. And usually we put landmarks up on a hill and they're noticeable and they're key places. And I think that title fits so well with these are landmarks of history that we're taking a look at. And landmarks really of our culture and our civilization. These are the things upon which we really see ourselves and our humanity. You know, the beginning of combat nurses, it starts off with the fact that we always hear about World War II heroes. 99 times out of 100 are men because mostly at least on the american uh, on the american side it was mostly men doing the fighting but those nurses were deployed in very dangerous areas they were serving under very grueling circumstances and they were heroes and so greta said it's so fascinating to be able to see women here as well yes and a lot of them do cover various women like clara barton and Pocahontas and Florence some Nightingale. Of the, Florence Nightingale. Many of the women were covered well, which mm-hmm. you know wasn't a thing back then right. in history book studies. So just the vision that Surf had to bring that in as well, and then just also how well he handled the um, Native Americans by mm-hmm. bringing in Geronimo and Sequoia and some of the others, and did it so well. Yeah. Um, now we can look back and truly appreciate what he was doing by bringing those in as well. I think another thing that's interesting, speaking of women, he was also pretty forward thinking in the authors that he was selecting, but 35 of the hundred plus authors that were utilized were women. And that was an unheard of amount at the time as well. And to also have thought that Dorothy Canfield Fisher like the whole series kind of hung on her involvement. He really wanted her in as a priority author. Yeah. So seeing that he was bringing in women authors as well to tell these stories. And one of the things I read somewhere, and I'd have to go find where I read this is at, is that he wasn't necessarily looking for experts in the field. He wasn't looking for historians per se, but he was looking for excellent authors who were passionate about their topic. And so there's um, a review in the Horn Book Magazine from March to April of 1951. And the review is by Catherine Shippen and she reviews the first 10 books. And what's really fun about this is she probably didn't know this at the time, but maybe she was hoping that she would go on to write two landmark books. (laughs) But at the time in 1951, she's just doing a review of the first 10. And a couple of things she says, she kind of, um, she highlights Armstrong Sperry's book about Columbus. And she basically says, who better to write about the sea than Armstrong Sperry, who knows the sea. And then she gives a quote from um, where he's telling about the Santa Maria. This is what she says. He knows the sea so that it is easy for him to tell of the sailing of the Santa Maria in pleasantly nautical terms. Hoist anchor, cast loose, all sail. The boat swains whistle shrilled, the cat stand clanked. 
To a rousing shanty, the anchor broke water and was tripped aboard. The yards were braced sharp up, ropes whined in the sheaves. For a second, the Santa Maria quivered as the tide reached for her with hungry fingers. So that's what she quoted. And who better to bring to life the Santa Maria than Armstrong Sperry? And then she just goes on and talks about like James Doherty being the one who actually wrote the pilgrim book that Surf wanted and to be the illustrator of it. And um, she highlights Dorothy Canfield Fisher's two books and, the, and just how powerful her writing is. And she says, there are two books by Dorothy Canfield Fisher. The first of these, Paul Revere and the Minutemen, gives the simplest and clearest explanation that I have seen of the causes of the American Revolution. You feel as you read it that the American people had no choice but war in 1776. And it is with a great feeling of tension, therefore, that you learn the British are massing to attack and you read. And then she gives an excerpt. Mm -hmm. So she just, Catherine goes on to show how these particular authors were so well suited to bring to life the stories. And then each book was read over by a historian for accuracy, mm. but it wasn't, they weren't just looking for the dry facts. They were looking to bring history to life again. Oh, I just think the authors, if we just even talked about a whole episode on just who were the authors, yeah. that alone is a really fun story. <laughs> we should it's do that. Podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I love about them, though, because you're learning about Columbus, but in the process, you're learning all of this terminology of seafaring and the adventure of that. It's not just a dry factual story of, you know, it's not an encyclopedia entry about Columbus. It's a story, but there's all this rich vocabulary and concepts and adventure and things that happen in the journey that you're also learning about. And that's what we want. We want yes. our kids to get lost in that world and envision themselves in it. Learn yes. from it. Love it. Look around. See, you know, taste the salt on their tongue from the sea air. Right. That's what we want. Well, I was going to ask Jill how these came to her attention as a, as a whole. And then also how she picked the ones that she has done or is going to do. Mm-hmm. They came about just um, from posts on Facebook where people were always looking for the certain list of unicorns because they were so expensive. And that's how they first came to my attention. And then I just did some more investigating on them and decided on the three that we have. So, but when I found the the Captain Kid book for eight cents, that was like a sign. <laughs> I had to get up and just stop thinking that I would do them someday and then just go out and get the rights for them. So that that's how they came to my attention was on Facebook. That's so, how I found Phoebe Fairchild too, for seven cents on the last day of a sale. Like it was oh, a big wow. sale. Right before it got republished and it just like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I found this. What a find. (laughs) Well, I I announced that we were going to do Oceanborn Mary because I just found her to be fascinating and that it was a true story and that it was 300 years ago. And then when I announced the rights to that, somebody said, well, you should do Phoebe Fairchild too. And I hadn't even heard of Phoebe Fairchild. Mm-hmm. And I, when I looked into it and saw that it was also a Newberry Honor book, I decided to ask her agents for that one mm-hmm. as well. So we released them together. And they, they're really well done. I love the covers on them. Jill, obviously you have a stock of those because you did a Kickstarter for the Lois Lenski yes, books. Yes, we did. Okay. And then when you print them on demand, they'll be a little different, right? They'll be a different size and they'll use different paper. And I'm probably going to have to go through and reformat them to use fewer pages because they're both, um, I think Oceanborn Mary is close to 400 pages. Yeah. And I would like to get it down to maybe 350 <laughs> because, you know, they, they have like huge margins on those pages and they're yeah. small. And if I make the pages bigger, it, it, they'll look more. Nicer. Yes. Yes. I was surprised today, Jill, when I looked up the Captain Kidd book, the old Random House mm-hmm. original hardback. I thought, oh, well, since it's been reprinted now, probably that price will come down. But it's still today, the lowest I found was $268. So what you've done is a true bargain to be able to get a hold of that book at all. 
See, I used to be an out-of-print bookseller in the 1990s. Most booksellers sold books back then for reasonable prices, but I saw there were a few that I knew who would like jack the price up more than 10 times over what everybody else was selling them for. And people didn't really start catching on to that for maybe like five to eight years. And then it seemed to be that once more people started doing that, that everybody did that. And I honestly think that some of those Captain Kid books might have been put into a bookseller's inventory like five years ago, and they don't go through and update their prices. And so that might just be a leftover yeah. because who in the I would never pay that much for a book, especially when I can get a new one for less than $20. So, well, and I happen to know somebody who actively scours eBay and looks anytime something pops, they grab it and then they hoard it so that the price will go up. I, I, that is how I came to be the publisher of Mr. Pine's Purple House, because back in the day, you could get more information on who was buying and selling on eBay. And I saw one bookseller buying every single copy of Mr. Pine's Purple House on eBay and hoarding them and then selling them on Abe Books for $300. And that just infuriated me. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you how I found my Captain Kid book. Yeah. It was the last one that I needed to complete the series. Sure. And five years ago, I was up very late one night and it came to my head like, oh, I really should look on eBay and just see if there's a copy. So I looked and there was a copy for $20. Buy it now. What? No, never paid that much for a book. Never. Mm. And I thought, oh, I don't know. I'll mark it, you know, to watch. And then I thought, it's not even a bid. It's a buy it now. I bet this person meant to put 200 and put 20. And I'm like, I must get it. Boom. I bought it right on the spot. I <laughs> couldn't believe it. Like, hey. That's such a great find. Yes, it was. This brings me to a couple of related questions. So Sandy, some people like me have maybe 30, 40 landmark books and just bought what I could find when I could find it as it was relevant for us. And now I'm so grateful that Jill's reprinting and I'm buying these books and I have no problem with the fact that they don't match. But there are a lot of people who are concerned about them matching. So you have a complete set. If you did not have a complete set, would you have a problem if your Captain Kid was a paperback instead of the original? No, not at all. Mine are hardcover, hardcover with dust jackets, library rebounds, paperbacks, reprints, whatever I could get. For me, it wasn't the, you know, this look on a shelf, although right. they do look beautiful. And if people have the money and want to do that, I understand. Sure, but for sure. me, it was more the content. I want these read by my children, and now I want to share them. And mm-hmm. so even books that have been reprinted into paperback by Scholastic or Sterling or mm-hmm. Glass Press and others, I still snatch those up so that I at least have two copies on the shelf if I can. I just don't worry about all of that. I yeah. try to just get the books because it's what's inside for me personally. Me too. Me too. So how do you, how do you put yours on your library, which is a library that people who are not your family members access, how do you organize your books? Do you organize them by series or chronology or topic? Most of the time, the nonfiction is organized similar to the Dewey decimal system, but not with the Dewey numbers. So I'll take the Dewey categories that follow along and just put those in that order. And then like the civil war period are in order by the author's last name, but all the Civil War nonfiction are there together. Um, So that's what I've done. Instead of trying to put 942.6879, you know, it just (laughs) got to be labored for my size library at at the time. Now that I'm at 16,000, maybe it would have been better. (laughs) But... Now you don't go back and do that would be impossible. (laughs) Although I'm a little OCD, so I'm tempted sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's I just have them where they belong. So the biographies are in order by the last name of the person it's about. The science are by science topics. And that works. My patrons learn the system and they learn where things are. And if they can't find something, I can look it up in my database. Awesome. 
Tanya, what about you? How do you organize yours? I do want to point out that there are people who are collectors. Mm -hmm. And so they are looking for these books as collector's items and to collect a whole series for the sake of the landmarks are just a unique piece of American history in and of themselves. And the joy of collecting. Yeah. And the joy of collecting and collecting yeah. can be fun. And these are, if you really want to collect children's books, these are a great one to, to try and collect. And actually, and you can put this in the show notes as well on Amazon. There were two gentlemen that wrote basically collector's guides to both yes. the landmarks and the world landmarks. Yep. And it has, I have not purchased them, but there's like a look inside view that will give you quite a few pages. Mm. There's a lot of really great information from their research about the history of them, the different types there were, the additions, just mm-hmm. there, it, it's really good information. So I can understand from a collector's perspective that they would want a matching set. And I could also understand that they would pay $300 for a Captain Kid. And this is one thing that Jill has talked about before, and maybe she could hit on it again. It's a well-known fact in the publishing industry that the first books sell a ton and you you yes. produce a ton of them. And as it goes on, it sells less and less and less. And I read that they published like 10 per year. And then mm-hmm. towards those ending years, it was maybe three or five, two, one. Okay. So by the time you get to Captain Kid, there just weren't that many being produced. And That's why there's so few. I wondered why there were so few Captain Kid. Yeah, I think it's because the readers outgrew it, Mm -hmm. right? By that point, if they were getting them regularly, then by the time it got there, they were 20 years old now instead of 10 or 12. New families weren't coming in at the same level, partly because the boomers didn't have as many children as their parents had, and partly because they didn't know, maybe didn't know or didn't thought it was too overwhelming to try to start at book one. Because you don't have to read these in order, but there is still sort of this human instinct that, well, book one should be the first thing I read, <laughs> then go to book two. But no, yeah. you, you can pull these from anywhere. Grab the one that yeah. appeals. Yeah, absolutely. So I can understand from a collector's perspective what a collector would be trying to do. For me personally, I am not a collector for the sake of collecting books. So when I go and I'm maybe thrift shopping or whatnot, I don't really care if it's a first edition. I don't usually care if the author signed it or not. Like if I find one that the author signed, I'm like, oh, that's fun. But I wouldn't pay money probably to have a signed one by the author. Right. I'm trying to curate a library for my home that's about the content Mm -hmm. and what I'm going to bring to my family. So, but, and I, I don't know how many books I have. My husband and I try to avoid talking about what that is. <laughs> like we know that it's a locket, but they're like all over the place. There's bookcases yeah. in every room, right? Right. Um, but it's in the thousands as well. It's it's not sixteen thousand, but it could be between five and ten, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's that's a hard number. It's like what's a million? I don't know. It's a hard number to. <laughs> but I do. I do personally have my landmarks all organized together, and all of my other series. Because I like the way it looks and it's easy for me personally to reshelve it. Mm-hmm. But also I use Biblio guides to keep track of my books. So in Biblio guides, I can just say, yes, you know, this book is stored on this shelf. Right. So if I were to have a lending library, which also is kind of a dream, maybe one day I would probably have to organize things differently. Like Sandy <laughs> does, but like for my home library, right? I like to have them together, but I also, you know, there's probably... 30-ish paperback ones, Random House kept some of the books in print after mm-hmm. that. Um, and there were maybe some minor tweaks, some additions here and there. Like I read one where they added a paragraph at the end of the book mm-hmm. because I was kind of curious, did they tweak these at all? Did they mm-hmm. were they unabridged? Were they not unabridged? And for the most part, they are unabridged with maybe an addition here and there. But I have some of those paperback ones and I just put the paperback ones all together and whatnot. But sure. I was lucky enough to get a Captain Kid book, but it's in the worst condition you could possibly imagine. Mm. So I was really excited when Jill reprinted it because mm. it was just such a rare book. So, and I hadn't even had a chance to read it yet. And I'm actually reading it right now. I'm slow reading it. It's it's an excellent story, but it makes me so mad. I didn't even really <laughs> know the story and I'm stressed on his behalf. So I have to put it down at night because I know what's coming. <laughs> Jill, what is it that you always say about Captain Kidd? You always want to go back and... I want to go back and change history for him because I know he was completely set up and most likely innocent. And it's just such a shame that there was one set of laws for his type of people and 
another set for like the king's men so that set him up yeah yeah i would like to change history for him he's one of the people and also joan of arc so yeah there you You, go (laughs) every time you reread you just think maybe this time it'll be different right you can hope (laughs) but you know it's never gonna happen (laughs) i'm with i'm with jill on that and you read it and you see that he he was caught in things that were happening that were beyond his control and a lot of powerful people had their hands in it and Mm-hmm. And he was, it just feels like he was the scapegoat mm-hmm. and it's just upsetting. <laughs> it's horrifying. <laughs> so, but it's but I think we're having that strong emotional reaction because the story is so well told and you mm-hmm. feel for him, you are experiencing the journey as he's experiencing it and then finding out what he finds out as he finds it out. So it was, it is such an excellent selection to have been brought back into print. And for me, I understand the feeling of wanting you know, you've been trying to collect a set maybe for your homeschool or whatnot, and you want it all to match. I had to let that go a long time ago. And I had mm-hmm. to be okay. Like Sandy said, I really got okay with library rebinds. I got okay with my library being eclectic yes. and yes. being beautiful in its diversity of stories, its diversity of authors, its diversity of stories around the world, but also the diversity in these books yeah. come where they come from. And I get them in a serendipitous way. And I, I love Jill's story about how she found Captain Kidd, because I do believe in serendipity. And I do believe that God will put before you what you need for your home. And so mm-hmm. if a paperback or, you know, a print on demand is now available and you can get access to that, or you find it at a bookstore, then now you get to bring it home in a way that allows you to I think still have good stewardship of your home and not be paying a lot of money for books, maybe. And also recognizing that the books that get brought back are probably the stories that we need. And we don't need to focus on the ones that are so difficult to find. And one of the things I heard a lot on Facebook was, why can't more of these books be back in print? And my answer is, they are. (laughs) Right. And we need to buy the ones that are in print. Jill, if these landmark books sell well, Will you do more landmark books? Are there others you hope to do or want to do? I have some inquiries out there on other landmarks that are unicorns, but almost stopped pursuing them because they're not selling as well as I had hoped. And it's also why the Medical Heroes book is on the back burner because it is illustrated with photographs. Mm -hmm. And the photographs from the military, like the Army, the Navy, the Marines, those are all in the public domain because the United States government doesn't copyright their photographs. But all the photographs that came from news services or newspapers (laughs) or journalists Those were all copyrighted, and I'm finding out it's very, very expensive to license them all because they want to know the print run, and they want me to renew it. Like if I do a 1,000 books and I have to sell more, they want me to renew the license and pay more money. And, you know, that book must have hundreds of photographs in it. So tracking down who owns the rights to all the photographs is going to be very complicated. But what I'm hoping to do is to find equivalent photos that are in the public domain, you know, very similar photographs. And I'd like to use them. It's just going to be a lot more work than I had expected it to be, which is okay. But if it's not going to sell, then it's really not. I mean, at the end of the day, even these original books, when they now they're vintage, but in their original form, they still had to be profitable and they still had to sell. And these two books, I don't know what number Medical Heroes was, but I know it was towards the end. But Captain mm. Kid was the very last landmark. Like Tanya said, the landmarks that have been in print for 20 years already, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of copies out there because it had been printed each time for 20 years. And this Captain Kid might have only been printed once or twice. And that's why it's so much harder to find. Fascinating. I have a funny thing that always comes to my head when I travel and all through my travels over the last 45 years, I've found books, right? And Mm -hmm. I found the landmark books. And so I love opening them and just seeing the old library stamps and where they're from. And there's a verse in Proverbs 31, 14, like she's like the merchant ship. She brings her food from afar, but I'm like the merchant ship that brings her books from afar. (laughs) That's how I always feel like like I've just gathered them from everywhere. And, and it's, 
even just a memory of part of my travels. You know, this one was in New Hampshire at an old antique oh. store, and this was in downtown Detroit, and this was, you know, another place that we stopped, and you just have the memory of all the collecting. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I want to tell the story too of my first introduction to landmark books. Yeah. I actually went to college in the 70s and did my grad work in education in the early 80s. And I took children's lit classes. I wrote a hundred page paper on children's literature, which I tried to find in my filing cabinet last night and I can't find it, but I had never heard of them. I don't remember them ever being mentioned. And maybe it's because they were just commonplace at that point. I don't know. So in the late eighties, early nineties, we started homeschooling in Michigan. And I had a friend that introduced me to the whole concept of library sales, which I had no clue of at that point. (laughs) And so I went to a library sale at the Monroe County library, which was about half hour South of us. I had a a garage sale the week before and made a hundred dollars. So I went to this garage sale and I bought 300 books, three for a dollar. They were wow. And I, at the sale, I came by a gentleman, he kind of turned and looked at me and it was a man I'd known from college and he handed me a stack of landmarks and he said, you need these. And I'm like, what are they? He goes, they're landmark history books. You need these. I'll just pull every one of them I see for you wow. that day. So I brought home probably 50 to 60 of them just that day at three for a dollar, but I had never heard of them till then. I couldn't believe it. So that's my story of getting started with those. And then we just kept collecting and going to book sales and finding them all over. And we had them in my boy's room in a bookcase, all in alphabetical order. And they just poured through those. Mm -hmm. So that was the beginning. I was just going to say that I think that part of it is the time because how would you know about those unless someone told you? Because I remember going to library book sales and finding things and and buying it maybe because it looked really old and it was a nice book, but it was you could it was bag day, you know. Our yeah. our library book sale always said bag day, and coming home with all these things that if you didn't accidentally find them or someone told you, how would you know? Because you couldn't go online and research. So if your library didn't have them or your school didn't have them, no. But I should have known. I did. I took children's literature classes. I think, Sandy, what you're saying is this was an omission of your, of your training. Is that what you're saying? Yes, definitely. And I pulled some books today on children's literature, even written in the eighties and nineties, and they don't mention the landmark books. And Dorothy Canfield Fisher it's sort of a landmark herself in American education of children right. and still no reference, no connecting right. to the dots. One of the questions you asked us to consider was when did they become popular with yeah. homeschoolers? And I was a very early pioneer homeschooler. So I didn't learn about them till Mark handed me that stack. Right. But I looked back and I really believe it was Michelle Miller writing Truth Quest History Mm-hmm. And then Valerie's Living Books website, yes. which is available on Internet Archive, mm-hmm. that, that's when they really took off and people were more and more aware. But I still have young moms that come in that are mid-30s, you know, and they've never heard of them. Never, yeah. So I love introducing them because once they get one or two and their children, they see their children really enjoy them, then it's whatever topic they're studying, make sure I get the landmark book on that. Mm -hmm. And they learn how excellent they are. You know, Tanya and I are very similar in age. And I think we came up, Tanya, at a very fascinating time because Valerie's website was alive and kicking when we were first learning about landmark. And the internet was here, obviously. And everybody was talking about him, but not everybody was homeschooling yet. And not everybody was homeschooling with Landmark yet. So you could still go to a library sale and be like, they're discarding Landmarks or signatures or whatever, you know, whatever the best vintage books of that moment were. You could just grab them all. And now I don't even go to the library sales anymore because the discards are pinkalicious and Captain Underpants. 
I live in Northeast Wisconsin. Homeschooling in Wisconsin is very simple. It's very protected. We're one of the top 10 friendliest homeschooling states in the country. We don't have to report anything or anything. So that means there's a lot of homeschoolers here. And because of the internet and the, and the high capacity for homeschool, these books don't exist anymore. And unless you're going to commit yourself to paying whatever is the asking rate on eBay, they're just not gettable. I noticed it the first few years I could get whatever I wanted if I just set my mind to it other than like Captain Kid. And now I can, it's really tough. It's really tough to find them. I think it depends on where you go because Mm. I cannot find them here. Mm-hmm. in my area in the South, but I think a lot of it is because the libraries were new in the late eighties, early nineties. That's when they were established because of the sprawl, suburban sure. sprawl. Sure. So they're not going to go back and buy old books to put right. in their brand new library. But when I travel to places that are older or mm-hmm. um, even in the Detroit area, I think because of the economic struggles, the librarians have hung on to books because I was just in the town in Southeast Michigan where my husband pastored for a while and went shelf by shelf and took pictures. I could not believe the treasures they still had. Wow! So they're still hanging on to them. Sure. It's just kind of interesting in different pockets of places regions where you can yeah. still find them. So I do say when you're traveling, look on book. booksalefinder.com and find out if there are book sales or libraries that have little carts mm. and see what is there. When you do your packing list, do your booksalefinder.org as well and make your plans. Like we we always say when you're going to go somewhere, make sure you know where you're going to church and know where, and where you're going to go buy are. your books. Yeah. <laughs> And save room in your suitcase to carry them back. (laughs) I just made a trip to upstate New York in August. And the little town where my daughter lives, they were giving away books, literally giving them away. Wow! And so I shipped home nine boxes because I flew this time. Usually (laughs) I just fill up my car, but I flew. (laughs) So I shipped them home. Oh, wow. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time for the next part of this interview. 